0: All right. Good morning. Boker tov. As we are uh, rapidly ascending on the month of Elul, the last of the month of Av, today we put its sadness behind us and begin the uh, the period of Elul. Anila do diva do and we do so. Parsha Shoftim is a great transition into that month. So, as always, we begin with an overview of the parsha to give ourselves a sense of context, and then we will delve into specific pesukim with a textual analysis seeing the uh, commentators of the Mikroz Gedola. So the Parsha Shoftim appears in the Artscroll Scroll Stone Chumash, page 1024. 1024. If you recall, at the end of last week's Pasha Parshat A, the uh, Torah uh, concludes with the Mishal um, Eshregolim, reminding us of the obligation of the three pilgrimage festivals to go to Yerushalayim, concept of uh, maintaining community. I mean, there's many, many ideas of the Mm Shalash maintaining a strong relationship with Hashem, maintaining a strong sense of community that you gather together, and so on. And then transitions to the beginning of our Pasha, Judges and policemen shall you place on all of your gates, which our Bali Musr already long ago encouraged us to read, rather than only literally as a judicial system and a uh, police force, judges and and, uh, officers shall you appoint, but the extraneous word, L'cha, it could have said, In order to have an effective society, in order to have a just society, you need judges and officers. But it says, L'cha, for you. So the Bali Musr, our authorities on character growth, encouraged us to read, L'cha, that this is not only an instruction to us as a community, as a nation, but each one of us as individuals. Where are these Sh'arecha? What are the gates to our lives? Our eyes, our ears, our mouth. Those are the gates to our world. We're starting uh, the Shabbos, our Elul series. Every Elul we try to do a series. And this year's series is being shalim, being whole. The idea of going for an annual spiritual, not just an annual physical. So we'll examine the well-being of our brain, our heart, our eyes, our mouth, our hands. And Shabbos shiva we'll talk about the neshama. So these are the sharecha, the gateways to a Jewish, or to a human being are, what images do we see with our eyes, what food do we take in, and what words do we put out with our mouth, what do we listen to with our ears, and so on and so forth. So shovtim Vishotrim, in this month of Elul we should have judges, meaning display good judgment, what we choose to listen to, what we choose to say, what we choose to look at, display good judgment, and Shotrim, and police ourselves well, regulate, legislate ourselves well, Make the right decision. So that's homiletically how this verse is uh, understood. And as I said, it's a perfect introduction to the month of Elul. But the more literal sense, what the Torah clearly is telling us, is in order to create a functional, efficient, and just society. And that's the opening section. The obligation to put sedek, sedek, tzedek, tzedek dof. When righteousness, righteousness shall you pursue. Why does it repeat it? Discussion for another time. Beautiful. Medrash tzedek bit tzedek tirdof, pursue justice or righteousness with justice. My brother in law, my sister's husband, his father's a federal judge in New York. Over his bench, he has tzedek tzedek tirdof. Righteousness, righteousness shall you pursue. That's what he spoke about when he was uh, installed many years ago. So, this is the, the uh, encouragement of, of the Jewish value of pursuing justice. The next section which seems superfluous, seems totally uh, incongruous. Don't plant an asherah. What is an asherah? Avodazara. It's an idolatrous tree, a tree that was worshipped for Avodazara. What connection is there in the world between justice and idolatry? So there's a number of connections one can suggest. One is that judges are tempted by bribery. Judges are tempted by ego, by power. And those are forms of idolatry. Ego is essentially the worship of oneself. Bribery is the worship of the mighty dollar. So therefore, it's a reminder that the judge, the one who is trusted with executing justice, should uh, must not worship themselves or the mighty dollar. Another pshat, I think it was the rav, in Asherah is, in Avodah Zarah tree. Gemara says, Kol da'yan kol any, any great Talmud Chacham who has is, who is not uh, come to the correct, accurate conclusion, the halachic conclusion comes to a corrupt or distorted conclusion is like an Asherah because of the juxtaposition of these verses what's the connection? So he said because a normal idolatrous tree a tree of Avodah Zarah, you see it from the outside and you know it's a tree dedicated to Avodah Zarah but an Asherah is unusual because on the surface it looks just like any other tree on the surface it's a beautiful tree it's only when you understand what's inside, if it's the only one you scratch beneath the surface, that you see it's a source of idolatry. So, so to the Talmud the individual looks like a scholar on the outside, it's only when you see the corruption, or the lack of due diligence, that allowed them to come to the, an erroneous conclusion, it's similar to a Asherah. But again, I don't want to, this is all just part of the overview. Is it a specific tree in Asherah, or any tree that is worshipped? I mean, is it an Asherah like an oak, an elm? Or is it any tree that you would worship? In the so it's um, it's I think a certain it's, I think it's a tree that you worship in a certain way as an Asherah, a tree intended for worship. Okay, so it continues with the uh, the laws of a carbon that has a mum, then the death penalty for uh, idolatry for idol worship, and then we get into the law of Ki Paleimimcha Davar La Mishpat. The middle of page one thousand and twenty six. Ki Paleimimcha Davar Mishpat. If you have a uh, question when it comes to the law, you have a question in any of these areas and it leads to conflict. You don't know what the right things to do. You get up and you go to the place that God has chosen. What is that place? Yerushalayim, the base of And... I talked about it at the Shom last Friday night, why the Torah doesn't spell it out. All these Parshios make reference over and over and over again. Right? Uh, We said, um, It keeps giving us allusions. Why doesn't it say it specifically? So uh, that's uh, for another time. But anyway, so you go to Yerushalayim. Why is Yerushalayim the address? All these things are for another time. When is that other time? I don't know. We'll find it. Keep coming. Gotta keep you coming back each year. So, Why is Yerushalayim the address? We think of Yerushalayim as the religious center of Jewish life. The Beis HaMikdash, the Karbanos, and so on and so forth. But Yerushalayim is not only the religious center of Jewish life, it is the intellectual center of Jewish life. And it is the uh, judicial center of Jewish life. It's where the highest court sits. Not coincidentally the highest court, the Sanhedrin sits in the Beis HaMikdash itself. The Beis HaMikdash, like our system in America has multiple branches an executive branch a judicial branch a legislative branch so too maybe perhaps it was modeled after the Jewish view of government of leadership where the Beis HaMikdash was the center of religious life of judicial life the high court sat legislation came from there the Torah Shabbat Peh the development of the oral Torah of rabbinic Judaism came from there and so on and so forth so that's where one heads to Yerushalayim Rav Shefter I always love to quote the Geron this Pasuk Bein dam la dam, bein din bein nega, are the three areas of halacha. All of halacha can be divided into three areas. Dam la dam means between two different types of blood, meaning the laws of a menstruating woman. Bein dam dam is isur the laws of isur v'heter. Bein din are the laws, monetary laws, and bein nega are the laws of tum'a v'tara. So you have these three areas of the three areas of halacha: Asr or mutter, chayav or potter. Tameh or Tahor. Those are the six conclusions that one can come to in any area of halacha. Obligated or exempt, forbidden or permissible, contaminated or pure. Those are the different areas. That's this reference. Interesting, right? Who do you turn to for guidance? Who do you turn to for decision? The Quran and the and the Shofay, the judge in those days? So you see the role of the Kohen, the role of the Levi, and we'll see today, we'll study more in depth, the role of the king is much more than a religious personality. There was a legislative component to their job description. Do what they tell you to do. Follow the Torah. If you wonder where the word Torah comes from, the Torah itself uses the word Torah. What does the Torah mean? According to thee. Look at two words later, and then you'll know what it means. Pia Torah Yorucha. The root of the word Torah is, to be more is yor- Yorucha. What is Yorucha? That teaches you. So the Torah, namely, according to the teaching that they will teach, Yal Mishpat, according to the justice, Do not stray from what they tell you, left or right. Here Rashi makes a somewhat astonishing comment. In other words, the rabbis are empowered. There's debate, exactly whether it's this pasuk or a different pasuk, but this is the source of rabbinic authority. Why do the rabbis? Where are the rabbis authorized? In other words, it's very tempting to want to be like a car rider. Sad, you see. Biblical Judaism makes a lot of sense. I'll follow what God told me to do. But man, who empowered these people to tell me what to do? Who gave them some authority? God told me what to do. Fine. Who says, man? So the Torah itself tells us. God says, I empowered these men. I empowered these people. I have designated these people as my mouthpiece to communicate to you my will. And what they tell you to do, I want you to observe. Do not stray from what they tell you. Left or right. Right or left. If they tell you go right, go right. If they tell you go left, go left. Follow what they tell you. I've designated them as my mouthpiece, says God. Because law will continue to evolve. You'll need to respond to new realities, new enactments, new protective measures will need to be taken. And therefore, I will, uh, I've empowered them. Now Rashi makes an astonishing comment. Why does it say, Don't stray from what they tell you, right or left. Afilu says, Rashi, even if they tell you right is left and left is right, you still have to listen to them. Even if they're wrong, you have to listen to them. Rashi is quoting the Medrash. Even if they're safri, even if they're wrong, you have to listen to them. What? If they're wrong, I have to listen to them? They paskin about this mixture that it's kosher and it wasn't kosher. They tell me it's not kosher and it is. I have to listen to them when they're wrong? So this is a big discussion. The Drash Saran has a long essay about it. How could the Torah be telling me not only do I have to listen to them, but I have to listen to them even when they're wrong? Why would it tell me to listen to them even when they're wrong? Joshua Saran gives a great answer for another time. Okay, let's keep going. Vaisha, <laughs> share when is the other time? I'll let you know. I'll invite you. I'll invite you. I'll give you a little hint. I spoke I gave a at my brother's Ufruf a bunch of years ago in our shul where we grew up in Tina Kimbine Shur and the Rabbi was away that Shabbos he invited me to give the Drasha. So I spoke about this question and I related it to marriage. And basically the suggestion I tried to give based on the Drusha around, but not exactly, is that and it's very controversial by the way. Some say it doesn't mean it the medrash No, when they're wrong you don't listen to them but Rashi's simple understanding how how could you possibly listen to them and I suggested that when you're in a relationship the details don't matter it's the will of the other person and satisfying it that do so you know if they're wrong they're wrong but relationships aren't about being right relationships are are about responding to what the other person has asked you to do Mm -hmm. so when God says I've given the the rabbis are my mouthpiece the rabbis represent my will so even if my will makes no sense to you it appears wrong don't only do what appears right to you because then you're not in a relationship with anyone you're in a relationship with yourself if your spouse asks you to do something you only do it when it makes sense to you so you love yourself you don't necessarily love your spouse the real expression of love is when your spouse asks you to do something you say that makes no sense to me I disagree with it entirely it makes no sense I could argue a million reasons against it but you know what? it matters to them so you do it anyway that's when you show them love that's the expression of you're in a relationship with them when you're willing to suppress when you're willing to concede your judgment, your understanding, your comprehension, because their opinion, their desire, their needs matter, that's a relationship. So, that was what I suggested then. Even if they're wrong, but if that's what God wants, you do what God wants because it doesn't have to make sense to you. It's not about being right, it's about being effective. So anyway, this is the entire portion that talks about rabbinic authority, talks about the development of Jewish law, it talks about our obligation to listen to them. And then we get to our section, which is the establishment of a king. We'll come back to it in a moment, we'll go through the psukim, the verses directly. The priestly gifts, there are a number of matnas kahuna, the obligation of what is given to the koin. We separate from our crop all of our income in agricultural society and in Israel still today, at least rabbinically. Um, one is obligated to separate Truma According to the Torah, Truma could be any amount, but rabbinically either a 40th, a 50th, or a 60th, which is not a large amount. But that's how the priest is supported. The priest designates himself to be a leader of the community. How is he supposed to earn an income? His income comes from the community. If Everybody, when they bring in their crop, the priest doesn't have a farm. If he had a farm, he couldn't serve in the temple. He couldn't teach Torah. So he doesn't have a farm, you support him from your farm. How much? A 40th If you're generous, 50th if you're Beinuni, the Mishnah is called. If you're average, the 60th if you're Stingy. That's your choice rabbinically. Biblically, it could be any amount. You also have to support the Levim, the Levite who also plays a role. That's the Miser. The the Levi also has to give Truma. Truma Gedola, the great Truma, is what we give. Truma's Miser is what, once the Levi gets his 10% from everybody, or from those who choose to give it to him, he then has to give Truma from his 10% to the Kohen. It's the biblical idea of paying it forward. So here we have the matnas kahuna, which is not only a portion of the crop, but which also includes the zuroah, lechayayim, and the keva. Who comes to the animal? The Cohen gets the leg, the foreleg, the jaw, and the maw. These parts of the animal. Rishis degancha tiroshcha vitzarecha. Truma is the rishis, the beginning of the degancha tiroshcha vitzarecha. The first of your grain, your wine, and your oil goes to him. Now, there's a big debate. Those who learned the Dafyomi certainly came across this in the Dafyomi over the last few weeks. There's a big debate between the Rambam on the one hand and Rashi and Tosos on the other. Truma. We have to give a portion of our uh, agricultural income to the Kohain. What income? Of what agricultural produce? Everything that we may grow? Is everything uh, liable to take Truma? So the Pasuk says specifically... Reish the beginning of the beginning of your grain, your wine, and your oil. That's what you have to give. And that's the opinion of Rashi and Tosos. That biblically, mido' raisa truma only applies to these three things. Grain, wine, and oil. Everything else that we give truma on, like in Israel today, when you give truma on even fruits, but certainly vegetables, that's only rabbinic. The Rambams of the opinion, on the other hand. That's not true. Fruit is included in the biblical obligation. Everybody agrees that vegetables... Are a different category. Everybody agrees that vegetables are only rabbinically obligated in Truma. But anyway, that all comes from this Another one of the gifts you have to give the Cohen a gracious Gaze son Chati Lo, the beginning of the shearing of your of your uh, sheep. In other words, this is how the Cohen lives. You support him all of these different needs. How's he going to get clothing? There was no. He couldn't go shopping in Costco or Target or Neiman Marcus or uh, or the other fancy or Nordstroms. Uh, wherever the Cohen's wife went shopping, uh, it, it uh, there weren't clothing stores. How did he get materials for clothing? How did he get food to eat? How did he get the community support These are the gifts to the Cohen, the gifts to the Levi, the Levi, and so on and so forth. Next, we have the idea of prophecy, the origin of the prophet, and the warning of the we had last week the false prophet and then we have Torah God sends us Prophets Navi Moshe tells the people a prophet like me will arise from your midst God will send him embrace him don't worry then we get to the concept of cities of refuge we have six cities of refuge three inside Israel proper three east of the Jordan why do I need the same amount of cities of refuge cover nine and a half tribes as cover two and a half tribes? Who's living east of the Jordan? Only Gad, and half of Manasseh. Why do they need the same amount of, of cities of refuge? What's a city of refuge? If a person murders by a- accident, the family of the victim is entitled to seek to kill the perpetrator and he runs to a city of refuge where he finds, where he finds refuge. And that's his home base. That's where he's safe until the Kohen Gadol dies and then he leaves. A lot of things need to be worked out. What does that have to do with the Kohen Gadol? Why, what is this? Vigilante justice? I'm not going to get into it, but one can't help but think about Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman. But if Trayvon Martin's family wanted to go after George Zimmerman and kill him, the Torah endorsing him. That's okay. So one thing important to know about the city of refuge is if the family catches the perpetrator and kills him, the family is then put on trial. is what they did just. And they are accountable if it was a murder of somebody who did it by accident. The court then determines, was the original murder truly an accident? There's three kinds of... There's negli- there's there's murder proper. It's a murder in cold blood. And then there's an accident, which is a pure accident. Couldn't have been avoided. It's an accident. And then there's an accident with negligence. There's a middle category, which has a higher level of liability. Where there's an accident, right? what my parents told me growing up, certain accidents that could have been avoided. There are accidents that couldn't be avoided. they are innocent accidents. Accidents happen. We're human. We live in a, a world of, of uh, frailty, of, fail, of, of failure, of error, of human error. But there's a middle category of accidents that could have been avoided. Accidents of negligence. So, uh, even, So, if the family took retribution, the court would have to evaluate what was the nature of the original incident. Was it murder? Was it an accident? Was it an accident that included negligence? Was it so you know, Shogi, Car so of the Maze, and so on. Miklet, you said oh, so why three and three? Why Thank you, thank you so much. My ADD kicks in. So why did the uh, why did the three east of the Jordan? So the Torah tells us. Do you remember why Reuven, God, and half of Manasseh wanted to settle east of the Jordan? Why did they want that land? Why did they want to come because in? Had, um, the answer was because they had a lot of cattle, they had a lot of flock. Right. They thought that land was perfect to settle. They thought that land will make them rich. They can grow their their assets, they can grow their portfolio, they'll become wealthy, that's why they wanted to settle there. So the Gemara says, and that's why you needed three cities of refuge, because those who value the pursuit of the material of money will become much more vulnerable to corruption, and to, to accidents, to murder, so that two and a half tribes need the same amount of cities of refuge as nine and a half tribes. Okay, so cities of refuge. The concept of when we go to war, what? They were large tribes, but still... But even so, but even so, when Israel goes to war, the Kohen, Meshuach Mahama, Cohen Kohen gives a good Musa talk before they go out to war, reminding them that when a Jew, when the Jewish people are in, in battle, we are, what determines our success, certainly is our military prowess, but ultimately is the Almighty Himself. Then the Torah talks about who is unqualified to fight, they should go home, Mia Isha Sherbon Bonabias, somebody who built a new home, and somebody who planted a vineyard, and somebody who married a woman in Shana Rishona very interesting somebody who married a woman in Shana Rishona doesn't have to go fight why not why not so I heard a beautiful pshat my brother told me from his father-in-law of Yaakov Lerner a young Israel of Great Neck I said a beautiful pshat he said he said you know why uh, because what do you mean he's exempt the Jewish people are fighting on behalf of our future and he's married in the first year of marriage so he said yeah his contribution to the Jewish people's future is Shana Rishona is making sure that he has shalom bayis, that he has a sound Jewish home. In other words, everyone has to make their correct contribution to the Jewish future. For those who are married a long time, it's by going to war, protecting our future. For those who are newly married, it's by building a sound, sacred Jewish home. That's the ultimate commitment, the dedication to the protection of the, of the Jewish home. A beautiful, beautiful insight. And there's a lot more to talk about here. If Dessler has his magnificent... Last year, when when did we do the series in Elul of giving is getting? We spoke about Rav Dessler, the idea of giving is getting. It's on these three psukim. What do you mean? Somebody gets married, somebody... We're comparing the person who got married to the person who built a house or planted a vineyard and didn't benefit from them. And We talked about love is the result of giving, love is not the result of getting. So these are the exemption from war. When we go to war, we're obligated to make an overture of peace. We don't go right to war. We're not a warmongering people. Jewish people are not a people that love violence or war. We do everything we can to avoid it. We make great sacrifices for peace. And we certainly have an obligation to make an overture towards peace. But if it's not met, if there's no partner in peace, then we are prepared to go to war. We're prepared to do whatever is necessary. In war, Torah continues. Wow, this introduction is taking the whole class. The Torah tells us about the prohibition of cutting down a fruit-bearing tree, what we call baltashkes, You can't cut down a fruit-bearing tree. Which is a big discussion on its own. And then the parsha Shoftim ends with a fascinating topic of the unsolved murder. Before there was law and order, or CS, what's it called? CSN. CSI. The unsolved murder. A corpse is discovered. And you don't know who the individual or who the murderer was. And you start to measure which city the corpse is closer to. Sanhedrin have to leave their place in Yerushalayim that we spoke of earlier. They have to travel, they have to interrupt their schedule have to interrupt their obligations, come and travel, investigate, and then a very peculiar ceremony <coughs> the Egla Egl Egl Rufa mm-hmm. the uh, head of a calf is cut off in a valley it 's a very unusual ceremony, and the people have to come and say <laughs> our hands have not spilled this blood our eyes did not see we 've spoken about this in the past as well a big message for the uh, concept of the Jewish concept of Leviah, of levaya of walking somebody out. In other words, part of the guilt of the people, of why they need to atone, even though technically they did nothing wrong, was, how could they say, We don't recognize this person. He was in your town, he was a guest, and you don't recognize him? Nobody said hello? Nobody welcomed him? No one greeted him? Nobody stopped to say hi? Nobody said, do you need a meal? The fact that he was in your vicinity, and he was not recognized by you, that's your guilt. You're not guilty of his death. But maybe had he not walked out alone, maybe if he had a greater sense of self-confidence because he felt valued, because people noticed him as he was a guest in town, he was invited, he was acknowledged, maybe the murder wouldn't have happened. So there's no direct liability. No one from the town murdered him, but the town closer to where he's found does have a responsibility, carries the burden of a level of liability because they did you know, what do you mean you didn't see him? What do you mean you don't recognize him? How could he have visited your town and no one here knows him? No one invited him in? So there is some level of responsibility. Okay, all of that is by way of overview. And now we get to the p'sukim, to the verses that I would like to investigate closer, more closely together today. And that is the beginning of Sheni, the beginning of the second Aliyah, which corresponds with Paragid in chapter 17, verse 14. Page 1028 in the article stone and this is the section of the uh, king, the instruction about a king. Everyone at the place, 1028 Perak Yitzayin, Pasuk Yedalit Ki Saval al HaOretz Asher Elokecha No Sein Lach V'Yishto V'Yishavta But when you come to the land that God has promised you, and you will inherit it, you will dwell in it, V'Yamarta and you will say, Asima Alai Melech K'chol Hagoyim Asher Savivosai Place upon me a king Like all of the nations that surround me. So here we have already a fascinating debate. Is the Torah, is Moshe, is God simply anticipating what will be and responding, reacting to it? Or is this an a priori instruction? Does God idealize, does God want us to have a king? Is having a Jewish king a mitzvah, an instruction? Or is it a concession? when you get into the land and you'll look around and you'll say we were slaves we were subservient we traveled through the desert for 40 years we're finally in our home we want to be like everyone else setting up a proper government means we want a king I want to be recognized as a member of the United Nations I want to be on the security council I want to be like everybody else I want a king is it a concession to the desires and the needs and the wants of the people or is God instructing that this is ideally what should happen? This is the proper form of governance. You need a king. So that already is a debate going back to the Sifri. Yeah. To debate this in the Sifri. Is it a mitzvah? Or is it rishus? Is it an obligation? Or is it an opportunity? Let's say they went into Israel and they never asked for a king. Would they have been neglecting a mitzvah? Is there an obligation to ask for a king? Or to, to appoint a king? Sure. Or is it only if you come and ask for a king? Here is the procedure and the protocol about how to do it. So here you have a debate already. Look at the opening, Ibn Ezra. It says, Ibn Ezra, Som Tasim, It's a concession, if you want. However, look at. Uh, Rabbi, didn't, show, didn't did Hashem not want a king for the Jewish oh, people? When good. Was yeah, we'll see that in one moment. Yeah, we'll see that, that in one moment. Didn't, but they wanted it, so. Yeah, so look at the Ramban. It says, Nachmanides. This is a positive commandment that when we get into the land, we must come to our leader and say, we want a king. We want a king. So the Ibn Ezra said it's Rishus. If you come in the land, then you want to be like everybody else. Okay, here's what you can do. Says the Ramban, he sides with the other opinion. No, it's a mitzvah sasei. The, the Rambam records, based on the Gemara in Sanhedrin, there are three mitzvahs when you enter the land. They are to, to destroy a malek, to appoint a king, and to build the base of Mikdash. To destroy a malek and to appoint a king. I'm sorry, to appoint a king, destroy a malek, and build the base of Mikdash. In that order first to appoint a king. By the way, the big discussion in halachic literature today, which we won't get into, is the Israeli government, a fulfillment of the halachic status of a king. When we talk about this in the redemptive era, that we, you know, to us as, as, uh, I believe, religious Zionists, we believe that the Jewish sovereignty over Israel, for the first time in 2,000 years, is not random or chance. This is a massive step forward in the redemptive era. We are living in pre-Messianic times. So, is this a fulfillment of that first step to have a king to have a Jewish government in Israel? Rav Kook Zatzal his Mishpat Cohen in his uh, response to literature discusses this with, with great consequences. Do the rules of the government have the status of the rules of a king and so on and so forth. Is it a fulfillment of the obligation of, of having a king? It's a fascinating discussion. So Ramban says, this is a mitzvah. Kolosham v'asisa ma'akeh And the instruction is not just to place a king. The first step of the instruction is to ask for via Marta. Go to the Konim and Leviim, to the Shofate, and say, We want a king. Not only is this a mitzvah, but this is prophetic. Because in the days of Shmuel Hanavi, Samuel the Prophet, when they said, melech k'chol agoyim, Jewish people came and they said to Shmuel the Prophet, We want a king like everybody else. We want to be like all of it. we want to be like the Goyim. We want to be like everybody else. Why now did the Torah say? When they come and say, we want a king like everybody else. Why do not just say, when they say, we want a king. Elamai says the Ramban, this was prophetic. The Torah here is prophetic. It is telling us what, it anticipated what ultimately did happen. parsha is not telling us, this is what we should say, we want a king like everyone else. It's telling us, this is what we will say. So the verse continued. When you come to the place that Hashem chooses, says Ibn Ezra, you don't get to choose the king. The king is designated and is chosen by the Almighty. Look at the Balaturim. He writes, Ki Savo is Bigamatria. the numerical value of the letters Ki Savo are the same as Bimei Shmuel, in the days of Shmuel. Like the Ramban, prophetic, anticipating when it will be in the days of Shmuel. Kechol says the Baal you will say, I want a king like all the nations around me. melech b'yisrael b'imei Shmuel, why did it not happen until the time of Shmuel? Because the police themselves didn't have kings, didn't have monarchy until the time of Shmuel. Why is the parsha of monarchy follow the parsha of the Asherah of the idolatrous tree? Because the principal job, says the Balaturim of the king is to rid the community of idolatry, to purge idolatry from the nation. That's true. That's what he says. Saranim. It was a different form, not yet the level of, of a king. Okay. So why wasn't Yeshua? Why wasn't Yeshua? See, it wasn't till later. Say? It wasn't till later. True. You it the land, you true. true. But remember, the land wasn't conquered. It took seven years to conquer the land, and seven years to distribute Between to the distribute the tribes. Fourteen years. In fact, the mitzvahs at bars did not begin until year 15. The first Shemitah cycle was year 22 after they entered the land. So everything was delayed. And I guess including this. Including this. Okay, now look at the Kliyakar who addresses kind of the elephant in the room. You cannot help study this Parsha without be bothered by the question that the Kliyakar is going to bring up. Rabbi Omrim says the Kliyakar. Who can offer the proper clarity On the great difficulty that arises About this mitzvah Because here's the problem Which is it? In our pasha, it sounds like God loves the idea of our having a king. When you ask for a king, it'll be great. I'll place a king. I'll choose him. Here are his laws. It'll be important. You need a king. Wonderful. Then you open Sefer Shmuel and you start reading Sefer Shmuel and the people come to Shmuel and they say, we want a king. Shmuel gives him such a patch, a zetz. Hashem comes and says, you want a king? What's the matter with you people? Which is it? Which is it? You can't help but ask that question. Can't help but be bothered. So the Kliyakr says, who will provide us the clarity on this most compelling question? So the Kliyakr says, you know what the problem was? Our parsha says, God loves and endorses the idea of a king. A Jewish king. With Jewish values. Living in a Jewish way. Which we'll see what that means in a moment. But that's not what the people came and said. They said... We want a king like the non-Jews. We want, a gen- we want a king like the Gentile kings. We want our king to be able to hobnob. We want our king to be able to have, uh, to be royalty and famous and live in palaces. We want our king to be a grace of knaker. We want our king to have the same levels of power and responsibility. We want our king's children to be in all the tabloids. We want our king to be kechol <laughs> agayim so he says maybe this parsha is not telling us this is God's will it's a concession that you're going to go about it all wrong but God will allow you to have the king says the Kliyakr I'll tell you my opinion in a short way which if you then see how long this is you wonder what a long way would have been (laughs) You know why God wants a king? The Mishnah in Pirkei says that pray for the welfare of the king. Remember we gave a whole class on the origins of the prayer for the government of the United States. When was it written? Why was it inserted into our davening? We discussed this Shavuos a couple of years ago. Shavuos coincided, I think, with Memorial Day, and that's why I don't remember. Anyway, but we discussed this. So the Mishnah in says, "Pray for the welfare of the government, for without the government there would be chaos and anarchy." In other words, it's the fear of the government that maintains order. So, why does God love the institution of monarchy, of a king? Because it maintains order. It instills awe and fear. And these are values that are important to society. To have a sense of awe, of something. To have a sense of fear, of something. To recognize that there is a concept called authority. Because when we lose that, when we lose respect and awe and admiration and even to a certain degree fear Then what happens to society I would say moreover God likes it because it becomes a human metaphor for God's role in our lives in other words how could we possibly relate to God as Melech Malche the king of kings if we can't even relate to a concept of a king it's only meaningful to talk about God as the king of kings when you could talk about a king it's only meaningful to talk about god as our father because we have a concept of a biological father in fact kabbalistically relationships are understood to be mean to to, to, uh, to mean why did god create these paradigms of relationships parents and children husbands and wives friendship king and servants All these different paradigms or archetypes of relationships, Kabbalistically, are metaphors for our relationship with God. Each contributes another angle of how we connect to the Almighty. And that's their purpose. So that, if I didn't know what it means to have a parent, how could I connect to God as my parent? If I didn't know what it means to have unconditional love towards a child, how could I understand God's unconditional love towards me? If I didn't know what it meant to have a spouse how could I understand what it means to have a romantic pursuit of a relationship with God? If I didn't understand what friendship is and loyalty is, how could I understand, how could I call God my my rea? If I didn't understand what a king is and being a servant, how could I make myself subservient and worship the Almighty? So the Mekubala, Kabbalah teaches, it's not just Kabbalah, I mean, it really makes sense, that these relationships, when God designed the world, Histaka ba'oraisa ubore alma, God wrote a blueprint for the world, He looked into the blueprint and He created the world. That means to say, God didn't create a world and then say, okay, so now, uh, let's see, how will I continue with people? Okay, reproduction, there'll be parents and children. No, God first wanted a concept of parents and then He created a concept called reproduction. He wanted a concept called romance, love. So He created something called two genders. I'll be politically correct here. I'll not be politically correct. I'll be Torah correct. He created a concept called two genders. So God cre- had a list of values and then He created a world corresponding to those values. So He wanted us to connect to a concept of melech malchei a king of kings. We had to have a human king to be able to connect. But the king wasn't always an honest king. That's true. Doesn't mean, they didn't always live up to it. Just like parents aren't always good parents. Children aren't always good. Char- children, marriages aren't always good marriages. Friends aren't always loyal friends. Correct? And that's, by the way, you know, as we head into Elul, that's Avinu Malkainu. Avinu Malkainu. My father, my king. There's a lot to be said about that Tfila. Avinu Malkainu is written by Rabbi Akiva. Avinu Malkainu. Mr. Sanders likes to remind me every year that which comes First. He's both Avinu and Malkeinu. He's our father and our king. But which one comes first? First and foremost, he's our father. Yes, we have to relate to God as a king. These are, these are contradictory relationships. With your father, there's a casual, close, intimate, loving, forgiving. With a king, there's a cold, distant, inaccessible. That Avinu malkenu, Elo yamim nora'im, is that tension. Avinu, my close, accessible love, my father. Makenu, my, my king. Inaccessible, distant, authoritative, and so on. So that's Avinu Makenu. So that's what the Kliyakar is saying. God wanted a king. There's value to a king. A king maintains order. A king introduces concepts of awe and reverence to the world. A king becomes a metaphor for the Melech Malachi What happened in Sefer What went wrong there? We didn't want the king for all those reasons. We wanted a king because we want to be like everybody else. Want to look like the guy and be like the guy and act like the guy. We wanted to be like everybody else. Everyone else had a king that they could send to the king conference. We wanted a king in the king conference. We wanted to be like everybody else. And that was our failure and that was our downfall. And he, Kliyakar, I guess in his katsar way, elaborates on this what I would call at length. But we will run out of time. So let's keep going. Pasuk Tezvav. Someone had a question? Comment? Some tasim alecha melech, asher yivchar Hashem alokecha place upon you a king that God will choose, right? Like the Ibn Ezra said, asher yivchar, that God will choose. How, do you, how does God choose it? Either the prophet, right, through Shmuel. How did Sheol become our first king? Shmuel told us. How did David replace him? Shmuel told us. Or... Subsequently, through the Urim Thummim, The coin's breastplate that lit up like a... sent signals and told us... Why wouldn't the Prophet be with it like a king? Prophet did didn't have, the Prophet to... didn't have the authority of a king. The king can put someone to death, Prophet can't put someone to death. The bar, there's a long abarbanel, which is very important to study another time, which goes into... You can't understand Sefer Shoftim without this Abar Benel. What's the difference between a Navi, a Shofet, and a Melech? A Prophet, a Judge and a king what are their what are their roles what are their responsibilities what are their entitlements what is their authority you have to understand what's the difference between the prophet the judge I mean you could throw in the priest if you want the priest the prophet the judge and the king what's the division of responsibility and of their roles there so that, that's it's a good question but a discussion for another time some tasim ala place a king upon you a shayivcha that God will choose where does he come from from your brothers. He shall be placed upon you, place a king. Don't put not Jew. He is not your brother. It doesn't mean to suggest he's your adversary, but it means he's not your family member. He's not literally your brother. It's in the Constitution, too. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Right? The America was modeled after this, too. My daughter has a major grievance. She wrote a, something for school when she was in like second, third grade she uh, my oldest daughter was born in Yerushalayim Iraq Kodesh unfortunately Supreme Court ruled last week or two weeks ago yeah. that her passport will continue to say Jerusalem and can't say Jerusalem Israel sadly her passport says Jerusalem not acknowledging Jerusalem as Israel so she was born in Israel and when she was in I forget which grade and she learned that you cannot be a president of the United States of America unless you're born in America she wrote a, a letter of protest <laughs> she was very upset so yeah, it's, it's part of the American uh, Constitution as well. To be a president, you have to be Mikara Vachecha. You have to be in a, born in America. So similarly here, you have to be born a Jew in order to be, uh, in order to be a king. So the Ramban says, we learn from the sum <laughs> <from the laughs> Tassim alecha, Melech. The Sifri learns a number of things. Melech velo Malka. Unlike England today, which has a queen and no king, the Jewish people are instructed to have a king, but not a queen. And this is a big discussion, which we are definitely not getting into, about, <laughs> about f- female ordination, female rabbis. The Rambam quotes this Pasuk, Melech V'la Malka, Rambam said, quotes the Sifri, that women are forbidden from being in a position of serara, a position of authority. Does that mean women aren't trustworthy? Of course not. That we only trust them with raising our children and our homes and our families and the future of the Jewish people. And it's absolutely nothing to do with trustworthiness. It has nothing to do with integrity. It has nothing to do with... It has much more to do with the... Um, approach to judgment. It, well, first of, all, to with, first of all, it has to do with... First of all, it has to do with the approach... To, well, you know what? I'm not getting into this. We're not getting into this. Let's keep going. We want to hear this. We want to hear this. Let's keep what going. What does it got to do with? In my, in my opinion, what it has to do with... I'm not talking about the issue of uh, female rabbis or female yeah. teachers or female... I'm a big proponent of female educators and teachers and our shul has, has brought in and will continue to bring in um, educated women who are role models who can teach and inspire women and men. I'm a big proponent of that. But I believe when the Torah says that women can't serve the role of judges and a woman can't serve the role of a king, queen, it's because um, that role requires a certain level of of cruelty, of harshness. If you have to go to war, if you have to declare war that's going to cost lives, if you have to put someone to death, if you have to execute someone, if you have to... There are certain responsibilities that people in those positions have to do which violate the nature of a woman. They go against the nature. They're exception. There are cruel women. But the nature of a woman who has a maternal instinct, women by nature are maternal, are much more kind, compassionate, loving, forgiving. And for a woman to have to overcome that instinct and display cruelty would be a violation of her quality. Just like for a man to do what would violate his quality. So it's not a judgment of them, it's not a statement about integrity or or competency. It's a desire to preserve the wonderful qualities of the different genders. In other words, God created a world with two different genders. And the Gemara and the Midrashim say that if we blur the lines of those genders, then the world will be corrupt and the world will fall apart. The contribution of the distinctions of those genders contribute to the world. and And it's not only true, it's true biologically. Right? I mean, it's fascinating because a community that rises and gets offended by that and says we're exactly the same there's no differences and how could you suggest that there I mean it hasn't looked in the mirror just as there are biological differences there are psychological, emotional, sociological differences they're undeniable scientifically they're undeniable they're undeniable I, I, might, I might so badly want to carry a baby I never will be able to I might so badly want to nurse a baby, have the experiencing of nourishing a baby for my own body and bonding with the baby in that fashion. I, I can't. Does that mean I'm worse than a woman? Maybe, maybe women think so. But I can't. I, I can't. So does that mean I'm worse? It means I'm different. So what's true biologically is true emotionally, psychologically as well. We have different instincts and intuitions. We have different skill sets, different psychological makeups, And we contribute different things to the world. And I think we need femininity and masculinity in the world. So those roles, f- the position of a monarch does not promote femininity. I don't mean the Queen of England. That's a very feminine position. And the reason it's a very feminine position is because it's empty and hollow and does nothing. Right? There's no teeth. No, there's no teeth. To, when the Queen of England today is a purely symbolic... Was that insulting? Are there British people here? Are the British people listening online? Am I in trouble now? I have to apologize to the people of England, to the Tower whole the Commonwealth. Commonwealth. I apologize, Moshe Leib. No, no, but no, no. The, 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 the Queen is a figurehead; yeah. she has no authority over anything, right? Pretty much. So it's not a violation of her femininity to play that role, but it would be in these other in these other. So Melech mm-hmm. v'lo Malka to have to be in those positions might uh, a woman might have to suppress her feminine instinct in order to display some masculine ruthlessness cruelty some of the actual terrible negative qualities of a man that the Torah concedes they have and therefore puts them in those positions that's my feeling take it or leave it but let's, let's go on there's obviously a lot more we could discuss but, but that conversation about women in positions of authority comes from this verse some tasim alecha melech melech v'lomalka the Ramban quotes it from the zifri and the uh, Ramban and the uh, Rambam quotes this to free, and therefore there is a big discussion. By the way, the discussion ends up going to the question of shul presidents. Could a woman serve in the role of being a shul president, of an Orthodox shul? You might be surprised to learn that Rabbi Saloveitchik said no. Rabbi Saloveitchik, the bastion of modernity of modern Orthodox, right. of Yeshiva University, Rabbi Saloveitchik felt it would be a violation of this principle, Melech Malka. Others have said yes that women can play roles in the executive board, be the president of a shul, making the decision, signing the checks, and so on and so forth. How you define serara, all these are important conversations, but they come from here. So again, this kliyakar is critical. Why, how do you reconcile our parsha with the episode in, in, uh, in Sefer Shmuel? But we didn't even begin to discuss what I wanted to talk about. Let's keep going very quickly. Lo susim, the king is not allowed to have too many horses. Lo Shiva sus why is the king not allowed to have too many horses where did horses come from what country bred horses and sold them Egypt so a king is allowed to have horses but he can't have too many that would therefore lure him to go back to Egypt why because we're not we're not going back to Egypt that's what we spoke about on this past Shabbos if anyone would like the source sheets email me and I'll send them to you but we had uh, 30 pages of, source, pages of source sheets on the prohibition, a biblical prohibition mentioned three places in the Torah. We are not allowed to return to Egypt. I uh, had the Rambam live in Egypt? and Ravaz live in Egypt? The Ravavad Yosef lived in Egypt? If you're not allowed to live in Egypt. So that was part of our discussion. Why can't we go back to Egypt? Because God took us out of Egypt and He said don't ever turn back. Geographically, and don't turn back to their value system, to their way of life. If the king had too many horses, he might turn back. Interestingly note, what does it say? Rak Loyarb Lo Susim. The horses he needs to fight in an army, he can get as many as he needs. low. The horses that become part of his palace, his chariots, his personal collection—they promote and contribute to his wealth and authority and prestige. That's where he has to be exceedingly careful and cautious. Simil- not similarly, but additionally, loyar <laughs> belo he also can't have too many wives. How many is too many wives? <clears throat> No, no more than 18. Very restrictive. I don't know how he did it. The king could not remember the biblical time his polygamy was permissible. It's only later. Oh, that Shlomo Malach failed. He had too many and it led him astray and he said he failed. That was his point. He was the wisest of all men and he thought he could endure and he failed. It says, He so 18 is the maximum. Wow. No more than 18 wives. It will fragment and distract you too much that you will not be able to operate in your capacity. When you are sitting on your throne, because of the king has an obligation to write a Sefer Torah. In fact, not only one, he has an obligation to write two. Says It says, shi of Rashi's midaic, Rashi sees in the verse, when he's on his throne, meaning if he does this properly, then he will merit to be on his throne He needs two. one that was in his treasury, and a second torah, a small little torah that he carries with him. Why does he carry that Torah with him? Imo says the Ramban, What's with him? Says the Ramban, the first interpretation is literally the Torah. He carries a Chumash, he carries a Torah with him wherever he goes. Second interpretation is The values, the principles, that which is contained in the Torah should, should inform and guide and inspire the king in everything that he does. The Ramban, in Hilchos Malachim, when the Ramban describes what's the role of a Jewish king, here is something incredible. And Unfortunately, so we're out of time. There was so much more to talk about here. The Ramban, Maybe we will t- we'll talk about that in one moment. Oh, so much to talk about. Um, but the Rambam in Hilchos Umelchamos, Perak Gimel Halacha Hey. The Rambam delineates what's the role of the Jewish king. So if I asked you what's the role of a king, you'd say maintain the army. He's the he's the um, what do yes. we call the president? The... General. General. Not the general. The commander-in-chief. General. Yeah. He brings us out to war, leads us in war. He leads us in negotiation with other countries. Right? Um, he's, the he's, he's the highest judge. He can put people to death. I would have come up with a whole list. The Rambam mentioned something that's the role of the king that we don't have a parallel to anywhere. I don't believe in the world. Says the Rambam, HaMelech Asa Lushto is the king's not allowed to drink. It makes sense. Ella, what should he do? Ye'oseik betorah this obligation to have the Torah shows the says the Rambam. You know what part of the Torah, the the, pres, the king's job is to learn Torah and to teach it. Could you imagine if part of the president's job was to spend a portion of each day in study, and part of his role was to teach the entire country? He taught. He published articles. He wrote. He lectured. He had a radio, a TV address where he didn't comment on politics, but, but taught. Fascinating, right? Totally different than every other model of government. But the Jewish model of the Melech is that says the Rambam, The king, part of his job, one can argue the core, essential part of his job is to learn himself, which keeps him humble, and grounded, and Because what happens? What's the famous comment? Power corrupts? Absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you negate that? How do you combat that? So Judaism has the answer. It's called the Torah. If the king has to keep the Torah with him everywhere he goes, and remember how frail and fallible he is, and remember that it's up to God, he remains grounded, and he remains with the principles of Torah. And his ego can't get in the way, and he has to always ask himself, is was this what God wants me to do? Is this consistent with Torah values and Torah ethics? Is this appropriate? Is this proper? Why did he need two Torahs? One Torah in, the, in his uh, treasury, in the palace, the other he carried with him everywhere. Why two? So there's a lot of discussions, a lot of different suggestions which are offered on this. There's a beautiful, Rabbi Fran quotes Rabbi Mayor Bloch, with a beautiful interpretation. He says, you know, the Torah that you bring out to the people... Not that God forbid you ever modify the Torah. Not that you ever compromise the Torah. But there's the Torah that you adapt to the people. But you should never forget the Torah that you still have back in your... Which is the ideal of the Torah. Meaning, a leader's responsibility is to teach and adapt the Torah to the people in a way that they can accept, and the way they'll observe, and the way they'll understand, and the way they'll be inspired by. But that teacher, that leader, can never forget the idealized, perfect Torah... Which isn't tainted or soiled or blemished, that remains in the base A beautiful interpretation. So the king has two Torahs the one that goes out with him, which becomes exposed to the elements, and the beautiful, pristine Torah, which never becomes exposed or violated in any way. Says the Ramban, just concluding. Oh, I should make it a two-hour class. The Vilti Rom Levavol Me'achav says the Ramban: Why is the Kohen warned? Why does he have to write two Torahs? And he can't have too much, too many horses, and he can't have too many wives, lest his heart be inflated, greater than his brothers. Rom, he'll think greater Me'achav. Min a mitzvah yamin ismol. Yamim amam hu beker of Israel. And says Rashi: Mechvalhei natasho me'olav, so that he can sit. He'll have longevity. He'll have a long career. So what do you learn? The opposite. That if he does become haughty, then he will have a short career, right? I spoke about two weeks ago. Arrogance. Elliot Spitzer's comment that at the core of his failing and Anthony Weiner's failing and everything is not lust and temptation, but is hubris. Hubris, he said, is terminal. That's what Rashi says. Hubris is terminal. You'll have a very short career. Hubris is everyone's undoing. You will not live last long as a king if your ego gets in the way, and that's what this last Ramban says. This is Nirmas Bekan B'Teira Issar This is the Torah prohibition of arrogance. The king cannot allow himself to become arrogant, and none of us can. I told the story of the Smag, Rav Moshe Mikutsi, the medieval commentary, who completed his ba- book, the Sefer Mitzvos Gedolos, where he wrote all six hundred and thirteen mitzvos in the night. That night he had a dream. In his dream he heard a voice tell him, you forgot, you omitted the most important mitzvah. And it is, don't allow your heart to become haughty. hubris, arrogance. And he awoke, and he writes at the end of his introduction to say for Smag, he adjusted his whole book to incorporate La'v number 64, the prohibition of arrogance. Arrogance is a categorically negative quality. It is man's undoing. It's terminal. And therefore the king, who is most vulnerable to arrogance because of the role, the position he plays, is warned and all these things are put in place in order to preserve his humility. Alright, we'll stop here. Have a fantastic week and great shows.